2: You may be the first president in history to go down because you can't stop inappropriately talking about an investigation.
1: I can definitively say the president's not a liar, and I think it's uh, frankly insulting that that question would be asked. Up to now, we have no profiles in courage among the Republicans. Somebody really speaking out saying
0: Trump is bad to the country. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about President Donald Trump the new gravitational force that defines our politics. I'm Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent and your host for today's show. On Tuesday, Virginia Democrats nominated a candidate for governor. They chose Ralph Northam, the sitting lieutenant governor, over Tom Perriello, a former congressman and self-described pragmatic populist. Both ran vigorous, progressive campaigns, but Northam, with his strong ties to the state party and deep relationships with Democratic lawmakers, prevailed. Virginia Republicans also chose a candidate for governor, former Republican National Committee Chair Ed Gillespie, who nearly toppled Mark Warner in the state's 2014 Senate race. But Gillespie, the favorite, expected to score an easy victory, barely crossed the finish line, squeaking by with just a few thousand votes to spare. Who nearly toppled Gillespie in an upset that would have upended the gubernatorial race? Corey Stewart, the Minnesota-born conservative whose slogan, Take Back Virginia, captured the core of his campaign. He was running as a Trump-like figure, railing against illegal immigration, transgender bathrooms, and other Republicans, slamming them as sellouts. He centered his campaign on an aggressive defense of Virginia's Confederate monuments and memorials, holding events at sites like the Robert E. Lee statue in Charlottesville and marching with neo-Confederate activists. He sent a clear message that his was a campaign for an older, wider Virginia, one that seeks to wrest the state away from its growing majority of immigrants, black Americans, and liberal college-educated whites. Virginia is a sometimes parochial state with its own issues and concerns, but the national tenor of the democratic race, where both Periello and Northam ran into anti-Trump progressives, and the Trump-like campaign of Corey Stewart act as loud echoes of politics around the country. We are seeing how the parties are adapting in the age of Trump, and that makes Virginia worth our attention. I'll be talking to Carolyn Fidler, a longtime observer of Virginia politics, about the governor's race. But first, a few tweets.
2: I believe the James Comey leaks will be far more prevalent than anyone ever thought possible. Totally illegal, very cowardly. The Democrats have no message. Not on economics, not on taxes, not on jobs, not on failing hashtag Obamacare. They are only obstructionists. Fake news is at an all-time high. Where is their apology to me for all of the incorrect stories? They made up a phony conclusion with the Russian story, found zero proof, so now they go for obstruction of justice on the phony story. Nice. You are witnessing the single greatest witch hunt in American political history, led by some very bad and conflicted people. Crooked H destroyed phones with hammers, bleached emails, and had husband meet with Attorney General days before she was clear. And they talk about obstruction.
0: Our guest today to discuss the Virginia gubernatorial race and what it means is Carolyn Fidler. Political editor and communications advisor for Daily Coast, and a longtime observer and participant in Virginia politics. Hi, Carolyn. Welcome to TrumpCast.
1: Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: so, I guess for listeners who were not following the gubernatorial race so closely, uh, people voted on Tuesday. Um, the winner in the Virginia uh, Democratic primary was Ralph Northam, who is the currently serving Lieutenant Governor. And the winner in the uh, Republican primary was Ed Gillespie, who was RNC chair during the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, ran for Senate in 2014 against Mark Warner, and now is the Republican nominee for governor. But that sort of in line with expectations, take that's kind of the outcome people expected. I think obscures a lot of very interesting things happening right beneath the surface. So, with the Democratic race, let's just start there. What did you think? Were you were you surprised uh, by any part of the result? Uh, Northam's competitor was Tom Periello, a former congressman. Uh, he got about forty four percent of the vote to Northam's fifty five percent. Was there anything about that result that shocked you?
1: I was surprised that uh, Northam won so handily. I'm not surprised that he won. He had – he'd been running for governor for a long time. He had a lot of structural party advantages behind him. And uh, he had – he his roots in the Commonwealth were just deeper than Periello's And for Virginia Democratic primary voters, that, that matters.
0: So, so one thing that I think – I mean one reason this race even got national attention beyond the fact that it was sort of one of the marquee – one of the first races under the Trump presidency, it's just that it very quickly became a referendum on Trump within the Democratic primary kind of electorate, who was more vigorously anti-Trump. And from my perspective, it seems like Piriello is the one who, in entering the race, brought this to the fore and Northam quickly came, basically bid him up. I think called, at one point Northam called Trump a narcissistic. Maniac was maniac yes. the word?
1: Yes, it was maniac.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but how much? I wanted to ask, like, how much did you think anti-Trump sentiment factored into people's decision making? And do you think that, you know, looking forward to November, do you think that that anti-Trump, whatever anti-Trump sentiment is there, do you think it will um, have an influence then?
1: I think I think the anti-Trump sentiment definitely fueled turnout, uh, if nothing else. Both uh, Periello and Northam were very stridently anti-Trump as well as they should have been. But Democratic turnout in the governor's race was another really shocking factor. It was extremely high. Uh, In fact, someone did the math, and if uh, Virginia had the sort of uh, top-two primary system that California has, Periello and Northam would be going to the general and not Gillespie.
0: Oh, wow, I didn't realize that.
1: Yeah, it was... uh, Republican turnout was abysmal. Uh, So,
0: So what? very good sign. uh, So, with, with Democrats, I guess that... Like, what's turnout normally like for a Virginia Democratic gubernatorial primary?
1: Uh, it's, it's it's a good sight lower than uh, than it was. I believe I saw a figure that was 130 percent over uh, over normal, but I should double check that. But I was looking at one uh, one race in particular, one House delegates primary, and was comparing the Democratic turnout, uh, Democratic primary turnout, to the total Democratic votes that the Democrat in that district got last time. And uh, the general election turnout was not much higher two years ago than the primary turnout was on Tuesday. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is, it's, it's phenomenal.
0: So that, I mean, it seems like that says something positive for Democratic chances in the fall.
1: It does. Democrats are engaged and excited. And we didn't just see that in turnout on Tuesday. We saw that in the number of candidates running for House of Delegates seats. There were 16 primaries for challengers vying to take on Republican incumbents. And that's, I believe, uh, two years ago, there were only, I want to say, three or four. It's an amazing sign. There's just so much energy and engagement. Democrats, not just turning out to march and volunteer, But stepping up to run for office, which is no easy task, it's uh, it's a big hill to climb.
0: So, I mean, from my perspective, this really does seem like a function of President Trump. President Trump just energized a lot of people to want to get involved at that at that level.
1: Uh, It's true. Uh, But in March, I went down to a candidate training in Richmond, and I spoke to a lot of these folks who are running for office, and a lot of them were were inspired to run. Because of their feelings about Trump, it was like he crystallized the the sense of uh, of, obli- of social obligation that was already there, the sort of uh, community uh, sense of community that they that they already had. They were, most of these people were already community activists and already very involved but Trump made them want to take that next step and run for office. I mean, they all were had their feelings about Trump, but when I spoke with each of them about their districts and their opponents, they knew exactly what they were running for and what they were running against in Richmond and who their opponent was and what needed to change locally for them. So it's a, it's a twofold thing, I think.
0: Now, on the other side, um, there was a Republican primary, and that, I mean, I'll just say up front, that was shocking. Um, it was. Oh, gosh. Uh, Gillespie... <laughs> Gillespie barely won. There was three candidates. um, uh, Gillespie, a sort of firebrand Trump style candidate named Corey Stewart. And then um, someone whose name I do not recall at the moment.
1: Frank Wagner.
0: Frank Wagner. Or Frank Wagner. (laughs) (laughs) Who was sort of like the moderate in the race um, uh, relative to uh, the other two competitors and Gillespie ended up winning by, I want to say around 4,700, 4,800 votes. A very squeaker of a race. And at one point, the the dividing line between him and his competitor, his next competitor, Corey Stewart, was less than 1,000 votes. The reason why this is shocking is that Stewart, you know, it, it's one thing to say Stuart was sort of like a, a Trump like candidate, but he but that's not an exaggeration or, or any or any sort of um kind of trying to shoehorn him into some kind of mold. He ran basically on the defense of Confederate monuments in the state and on xenophobia and anti immigrant sentiment. <laughs>
1: Uh, I mean, in many ways, I think with the Confederacy uh, def- uh, defense, he was he was running. I feel like in some ways that he was more extreme than Trump. His he's going to rallies and making bold statements about Confederate monuments coming down, and by bold statements, I mean racist statements. But I I've, I hadn't seen anything like it in Virginia. I mean, there's there are a lot, a lot of dog whistles over over time. I remember. Oh boy! I remember George Allen with his uh, his noose he would keep in his law office, and how when he was questioned about that, he said it was it symbolized frontier justice. But to have Corey Stewart coming out and and speaking about the Confederacy in such a romantic way, it was nothing I'd ever seen before.
0: So my question for you is, what does this mean? I mean, what does it mean that Stewart almost became the nominee? I mean, if if it had rained in like the wrong places, he probably he could have become the nominee. <laughs>
1: No, I think that's right. Um, and uh, and, and part, of, part of Corey Stewart's success, uh, near success, uh, relative success on Tuesday, was based around the fact that Republican turnout was so low. Democrats were super energized and Republicans were super not. Um, low turnout definitely helped uh, Corey Stewart because the sort of rabid crazies who would support the kinds of things that he speaks in favor of are the ones who definitely get out to vote. And you're more sort of run of the mill Republican that, that, you know, tends to hew more towards Gillespie is, seems to be much less vot- motivated this year. Uh, and that's a, that's a great sign for Democrats and troubling for Republicans on several levels. I mean, he, people aren't excited about Republicans. Republicans aren't excited about Republicans. And there's this fringe element that's gaining strength. And that is a really bad sign for them.
0: Right. That's what I wanted to ask you about, because I I have to, I confess, like, I've always been skeptical that the Trump thing could translate down to other candidates in other environments. And if there was ever a place where it seemed like a Trump-style candidate couldn't get traction, it was was Virginia, even with uh, the state's experience with sort of hard right candidates like Ken Kuchnelli or E.W. Jackson or or whomever, the, the kind of the, the mood and feel and ethos of Virginia Republicans is tended to be pretty kind of uh, not moderate but um, uh, not crazy not crazy pragmatic uh, sort of traditional you know these are business suit Republicans um, when it comes down to it right. so why do you think Corey like Corey Stewart's Trump-like act appealed, like how and and it, 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 I should say, looking at the maps, you know, you would you would assume that it appealed most in the rural parts of the state, and it did. But Stewart didn't do poorly in parts of Northern Virginia. Um, he didn't do poorly in parts of Hampton Roads which is where I'm from. So there's something happening there, and I'm not really sure what it is.
1: Yeah, it, it seems a little little too soon to to really come to. Start conclusions for that, but the indicators are, are not good. I mean, the Northern Virginia thing, to an extent, can be explained away by the fact that he's head of the Prince William uh, Board of Supervisors, which is also inexplicable to me, because he's terrible and has a long history of uh, racially charged policies, primarily against Latinos and Hispanics in the area. Um, but, you know, he at least had name recognition, but Hampton Roads, uh, is, is his good performance there is is, is really shocking, and his Shockingly strong performance overall is um, is is something that definitely merits a lot of scrutiny from both political scientists and analysts, and from the Republican Party itself. They have a lot of uh, self reflection to do to figure out what they need to do if they're going This is the party they're going to be now. If that's what spells success for them, or if they are going to continue to try to appeal to a broader base of normal humans. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, so on that note, I mean, what do you think this means for Gillespie in the fall? I mean, uh, you know, in the late, in the late period of the primary campaign, even he was promising to to defend Confederate monuments in the state. So do you think this sort of creates an almost impossible rope to walk for him? Uh, it, peel- it, Go ahead. Sorry.
1: Oh, it makes his journey much harder for sure. Uh, he, yeah, like you said, he definitely hewed more to the right, more to the the crazy pro-Confederate side, which is just something I can't believe I'm saying in 2017. Um, and, and Corey Stewart has reluctantly sort of backed him, but says things like, Gillespie's got to earn my supporters' support, and that's, that's, that's not a positive sign for the Republican Party in the Commonwealth uh, this fall. The excitement is low to begin with, and if not everyone who voted for Corey Stewart was going to come out and vote for Ed Gillespie. He's dead in the water
0: now. Aside from the gubernatorial race, and you mentioned the House of Delegates races and kind of the the General Assembly General Assembly races. What you know, where does that look? Because one of the kind of the problems um, in Virginia politics as of late, as with national politics, is just that there's been this divide a partisan divide in the legislature and, and, and then the governor's mansion, um, which has made sort of any like actual progress on things very difficult. And so it, does, it, does, does it look like things are changing in the legislative level?
1: Uh, yeah, I'd say so. Um, I mean, I mentioned the high level of excitement and the many, many Democratic candidates that came out of the woodwork this year to run. Um, but... That has to be set against the, uh, the, the harsh reality of the fact that the House of Delegates in Virginia is terribly, terribly gerrymandered. In a state that went for the, in the last three presidential elections for the Democratic candidate, Democrats only hold 34 seats in a 100-seat House. Um, and that is, that is largely a function of gerrymandering. That said, that is not, uh, something that can't be overcome. Uh, it, it would take a wave and it would take, and it takes Democrats running everywhere they can run. And that's absolutely happening this year. Out of 100 seats in the House of Delegates, th- Democrats have candidates in 87 of them.
0: Oh wow, that's that's uh, that's very unusual and impressive. Yes,
1: uh, two years ago they had candidates in uh, 56 or 57, if I recall correctly. Not not all that many. Uh, so there are very few Republicans going unchallenged, and the ones that are going unchallenged are in you know very very difficult districts, all the top tier races, as, as they're known. Um, and the parlance uh, are have great candidates. Uh, a lot of them had primaries, a lot of them didn't. But all these candidates are very, very strong, very motivated, very talented, have really great personal stories. They're all raising money. Uh, things look really rosy for Democrats this fall.
0: Okay. So one last question. Uh, for listeners who are not as attuned to Virginia politics. Um, should they look at these races, these House of Delegates races, this governor's race, as having, you know, real national significance? Does this does this really matter in terms of kind of the ongoing political back and forth between Trump and, and the Democratic Party? Or is this like kind of just a parochial thing?
1: Uh, I don't think it's a parochial thing, uh, but I also am hesitant to like super nationalize it. Uh, Virginia is right next to D.C., uh, and is one of those states that, one of those few states that has its elections when no one else, almost no one else, has elections. New Jersey is also having elections this year, so all eyes are on Virginia in a way they might not be if uh, this were an odd-numbered year with a lot of other elections on the ballot. That said, Virginia is, uh, has been definitely trending more and more Democratic over the past um, 12 years. I guess I, I guess uh, we can say, safely say, and uh, seeing how that sort of plays out uh, this fall is going to tell both parties a lot about um, politics in the age of Trump and what it means to have Trump kind of overshadowing the rest of a ticket. So it's going to be very educational.
0: I have been speaking to Carolyn Fidler, political editor and communications advisor for Daily Coast. Thank you for joining me today, Carolyn.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And that's the show for today. Did you like it? If so, reach out to us on Twitter. You can follow us there as at RealTrumpCast to keep up with all the latest from the TrumpCast team. That's at RealTrumpCast. And be sure to stick around after today's credits to listen to the first episode of a new slate show, Trumpcare Tracker. There, you can hear my colleagues Jordan Weisman and Jim Newell discuss all things healthcare. The show goes up every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and you can find it on Apple's podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to stick around until the very end here to catch the first episode of Trump Care Tracker. Today's show is produced by Jason DeLeon, and I'm Jamel Bowie. Thanks for listening to TrumpCast.